All right, all right. Morning. How are we? Good, good. Hey, that was great. I'm ready. All right, here we go. Uh, I'm excited to jump in uh, about uh, Jesus and worshiping our King with you. I ain't going front. Worship messed me all up, and I had to, like, run to the bathroom and make sure I didn't have snot in my nose. And so I'm already, like, ready. Nobody laughed at that, but I was crying, y'all. Worship was good. That's what I'm saying, all right? Uh, hey, uh, we are on our second to last week, finishing this series about how Jesus is our servant King, that those two things are not uh, autonomous, but rather they dwell in unity together in the person of Christ. And so Jesus is truly representing both here. And today we're actually going to look at where the story ends in a lot of ways. And next week during Easter, we're going to look at where the story begins. And that'll make sense as we dive into it today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Mark chapter 15 is where we are going to be. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, then the ushers will be coming forward right now and you can actually just raise your hand. Uh, They would love to give you a Bible. Uh, If you physically do not own a Bible, I would encourage you to raise your hand and uh, actually keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to be able to have the word during the week. You can also follow along on your smartphone by using uh, the instructions here. Uh, You can type that into your browser. Uh, Man, I say this every week because I mean it. We want your eyes on the word, especially today, because we're going to go through a lot of texts and God does a lot of things in and through the scriptures. But uh, we really believe that the scriptures are spirit inspired. And because of that, and the spirit now dwelling inside of us, God can communicate to us through the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we want you to be able to see that and to follow along with that so that you know this just ain't some random dude up here just saying stuff, right? Like we really believe that this is the word of God speaking to us. So uh, before diving into our actual text that we're going to be in, which is Mark 15, you can camp out there today, but we got to go all the way back if we're going to be able to understand what's actually happening today and really go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, what you see is God and man kind of dwelling together in perfect harmony. Man is fully alive, if you will. He is who he was made to be. And God gave the man, the one command, not to eat from the tree. And my man was tripping and started munching on the tree, all right? And so if you know the story well, you know that Adam disobeyed God. So Adam, the tree eater, became a representative of all of us, that we too, when God says, hey, do this or don't do this, we kind of go, you cool, God, I'm going to go my own way, all right? And that's what we begin to do. And so Adam is showing how all of us were uh, really lawbreakers. We do not respond to God, either because we do not believe that he's actually God and therefore doesn't need a response of us, or we don't think that God is good, that he's withholding something, that there's more to be had. And so we try to go our own way in that. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16, it'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But it just says this. I want to read what this law is. It said, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Don't ever think that God is not gracious and generous. Every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That word die there or death is an all-encompassing word, which means physical death, emotional death, and spiritual death, which is true death, separation from God, that we would now no longer have unity with God, but rather be divided from God. We would lose that intimacy with God. And so when Adam and Eve, when they ate of the tree, spoiler alert, in chapter 3, 
and they ate of it, they created this chasm between them and God. There was a true separation. And ever since then, there's been physical death, there's been emotional death, and there's been spiritual death, that we can now uh, be separated from the God of the universe. Now, in modern culture, that may feel a little bit drastic to us, that like these sins cause us to be eternally separated, even face damnation, eternal separation from God. That may, that may feel like too much in our culture, but I would actually argue that even in our culture, with our unjust understanding of justice, as humans do have, we still actually understand the weight of this in a way. And so take a simple sin, like something like lying, right? I'm assuming that most of us would agree that lying is not really good. When my daughter lies to me, she gets a timeout or other things that I won't mention, so you don't call CPS. I'm just kidding, right? But there are, right, things that happen, okay, because lying isn't good. It's not a good pattern to have. Now, let's pretend that you lie to a stranger, somebody that you don't know, right? What is the consequence there? It's not, it's not really nothing, right? Like, you're kind of a jerk for lying to a stranger, right? Like, why would you do that? You don't even know this man, right? But that's about it, okay? Now, let's take it up in a level. Let's say you begin to lie to a friend, there's a little bit more serious consequence there. In fact, the friend could find out you're lying and then all of a sudden you lose that friendship. Let's say that you lie to a police officer. Well, once again, now you can actually get in some serious trouble. There's some actual consequence. Let's say that you lie to the grand jury. Well, that's an immediate 10 years because it's called perjury. And literally, we realize that the higher the level of authority, the more serious the consequence of our sin now take the God of the universe, who is more of a judge than all of the grand juries that have ever existed all throughout human history combined, and now what is the consequence? See, we who have an unjust measure of sin, even we realize the greater the power, the deeper the consequence. And so too with our God. But the problem is, is that we do not view God as God. We do not view him as a judge. We actually view him as a stranger, so we think there should be no real consequence. But in reality, there is consequence to our God, and not only, friends, are we lying once to God, not only do we face a 10-year penalty for that, but we lie over and over and over and over and over again, and not only do we lie, but we sin, and we sin over and over and over and over again, and all of a sudden, we begin to realize, as Romans tells us, that the wages of sin is death. We work for sin, and the payment is death, is what that is. And so we see this. This is not a drastic response at all. In fact, it's a just response. It's the right response. There's consequence when you break God's perfect law, which would have created perfect harmony. When we fracture that harmony, then there's a penalty for that. And so this is what happens. There's serious separation that deserves death because we spit in the face of the judge. And as humanity continued to spiral downward into more and more death, we began to try to fix things or, or do things to kind of recreate what we knew we were missing in our heart. And so whether some of us were trying to be good to kind of work our way back to God, not realizing that, hey, listen, I could be good my whole life. I could serve Campbell every Saturday. And if I lied to the grand jury, there's still punishment for that, right? 
So when we sin, there's still punishment. You can't overcome no matter how much good you've done. You've done a lot of bad too. And so some of us try to do good. Some of us kind of ignore God or go our own way or make up our own God. So in that way, we're really just serving ourselves and our creation of God in our own head, which means it's you, right? Or for some of us, we uh, try to use science or play and pleasure or money or advancement or whatever it is we were not create or, or feeling, we knew that we were not who we were created to be. We knew there was more, so we tried to find a way through it. So fast forward to our text today. I know that's a heavy way to start the sermon, right? But we kind of feel like there's something that we can do to get back to God or to pay for the separation, but there's not. And so God then makes his way to us in the person of Jesus, and this is where we start off, is that Jesus now is actually about to pay for Genesis chapter 2, what we broke, and the full measure of that, everything that was wrong, all of the drama in the world, all of the brokenness that we feel, friends, it culminates to our text today. And I want to tell you the text today is actually really heavy because our sin is heavy, and yet the text today is also unbelievably hopeful because our God is hopeful. And if this is true, then it changes everything about everything in our lives. And so Mark chapter 15, I want to pick it up there in verse 16. It says this, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. We jump obviously into a heavy text. Now in our justice-oriented culture where we long for justice for the marginalized and rightly so, nothing should pull at our heartstrings of justice more than this moment right here because this man has done nothing wrong. In fact, the whole scene that led to this is a really deplorable scene. They arrested Jesus in the middle of the night, and they had trial against that man in the middle of the night while everybody else was sleeping. And even there in that trial, they brought all these false witnesses, none of whom had agreeable testimony and yet still found a way to condemn that man to death. Not only was there an unjust trial, though, but he was being unjustly treated here as he's being beaten and the mockery is being uh, hurled at him. This whole scene, what Mark is trying to show us, is unjust, kind of. In a lot of ways, it's actually extremely just because this is what you and I deserve. If the wages of sin is death, then this is what we should be experiencing. And yet Jesus Christ comes down and he begins to pay for every single sin that you or I have ever done. See, even the crown of thorns, friends, is actually a symbol of this. If you're familiar with the scripture, you know in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it says that man, part of the curse, is that they will be working the ground all the days of their life, and it will do nothing but produce thorns and thistles. In other words, you will get cut up no matter how hard you try. The thorns will come, and they will choke you out in a way. And listen, Jesus has the crown of thorns on his head, literally paying for the curse that was promised to man back in Genesis chapter 3, 16. This whole thing is Jesus' payment of what 
what we actually deserve here. Jesus takes up the thorns. He's beginning to endure the treatment that we would experience. But think about the gravity even of this treatment here. I can feel it in the room, right? Like they brought a battalion of soldiers to him. Y'all, that's 600 soldiers. That's like the whole first gathering and this gathering combined all coming to mock and ridicule and beat and spit on and make fun of this one man who had done nothing but love all of humanity his whole life. They're just hurling insults at this man. The injustice here, the gravity here, Jesus is beginning to experience this pain of sin but Mark doesn't want to alleviate, alleviate us from this. He wants to keep pressing in. So keep going. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. What this is showing us, friends, is that Jesus suffered the physical pain of death. Right here, as Jesus begins to suffer that, he is beginning to die, and in a few moments we will read that Jesus died. The cross shows us that Jesus paid for our physical death. Now, we cannot understand, in a lot of ways, the weight of the cross. Oftentimes, it kind of loses its weightiness to us in our culture because, in a lot of ways, we kind of glamorize it. And we don't really have an adequate metaphor in our culture to explain the cross at all. But the best thing that we can probably come up with is something like the electric chair. Even though that's an analogy that falls short, like imagine the electric chair being worn as a pendant around your necklace. Imagine churches putting up electric chairs around their building and we kind of sing about electric chairs, and there's songs that we raise our hands to about electric chairs, or we get tatted up with electric chairs on us. Like, that would feel kind of crazy, right? In some ways, we've romanticized the cross, and because of that, we've stripped it of its, uh, really, humility, of the, of the lack of humane thing that was happening here. And listen, honoring the cross is okay. It, it's good. Like, that's a right thing to do. We should be doing that. But Jesus, y'all, is beginning to kind of go through hell here, and we cannot ignore that. We have to let it feel the weight of that in order for us to feel the victory that comes out of it. But even the electric chair falls short because the electric chair, in theory, was supposed to be uh, humane and quick. The cross was the exact opposite. It was meant to prolong agony and be the exact opposite of humane. As they stripped him and mocked him and literally led him naked, and as people began to curse him in a way, this was meant to strip a person of all of their dignity and all of their humanity. The electric chair was meant to be done in private for honor and dignity of a person, but the cross was up on a hill for everybody to see, which is why passerbys come. The cross screamed, this is the scum of the earth. 
This is the most worthless being that exists. Make fun of him. Laugh at him. The electric chair, you wore a hood or a mask to really cover all the pain that's going on. But on the cross, you were stripped naked for all to see as they watch you suffer and die. The cross was a form of advertisement on display for all. This is what happens to the scum of the earth. And Jesus is willingly paying that for you and for me. He's suffering this and walking into this willingly, the Bible says. He willingly laid down his life. In fact, the cross is so painful, it's actually hard to describe in language what happened if you didn't see it or couldn't go through it. And so as they were writing this in the Latin, they literally couldn't come up with a word to describe the agony. Words like agony or pain or trauma weren't enough. So they invented a word to describe how awful the cross was, the word excruciating that we still use today. That word literally means of the cross. And so there's all this drama. It went from all of this physical punishment, all the unimaginable consequences of this, and your Savior willingly went through this. Jesus suffered physical death for us in our place, what we deserve. But Mark doesn't lit up again. He keeps going. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He save others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Not only is Jesus going through terrible physical pain and beginning to experience physical death that we deserve, but he's also here experiencing the emotional death that we deserve. Jesus is now suffering emotionally, psychologically. Look, everyone is deserting him, as we read about last week in Mark chapter 14. But now not only is everyone deserting him, everybody is mocking him. He's already in utter agony, literally laying down his life for humanity, and all of humanity, the very people that he's dying for are now turning around and hailing insults and mockery and spitting and gambling for his clothes and wagging their heads. And even the criminals who were actually criminals are sitting here deriding this man. Jesus is going through all forms of emotional suffering that we wouldn't even be able to imagine, y'all. Like his own disciples are deserting him. Even the women that he blessed were off in a distance, Mark says, kind of watching. They didn't want to be too close, right? The, all of this, Jesus is suffering on our behalf, but he keeps going. Mark doesn't lit up the gas pedal again. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed to give it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who uh, stood facing him saw in that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was a son of God. 
If you're familiar with the Exodus story in Exodus chapter uh, 10 and through 12, really, what we see is the 10 plagues of Egypt. It's really God's condemnation on a nation that was unwilling to turn to God. And the ninth plague was darkness for three days. And then the 10th plague was death of the firstborn son. And so here, there's darkness over the land for three hours, and then death of the firstborn son. Jesus is experiencing this spiritual death as if he rejected God and never turned toward God in any way, shape, or form. This darkness all the time throughout Scripture symbolizes judgment. And it's God's judgment against humanity or against a king or against a nation. And it gets dark because God's judgment begins to now rain down upon Christ as he faces the spiritual death that all of us deserve. That word forsaken means to be cut off or separated from. And so torn in two was his flesh and torn in two was his heart and torn in two was his soul. Jesus is dying in every single way imaginable and Mark is trying to lay a heavy weight upon this, y'all. He's trying to make us feel the weight of what's really happening here. And to be transparent, it's actually hard for us to understand spiritual death because even if we're like, I hate God, I don't care anything about him, it's still God's grace in your life that gives you the breath in your lungs that you have right now. And so none of us are actually separated from God in that way. And yet here comes Jesus facing this spiritual death. The best analogy I can think of, which still falls about a billion miles short, but it would be really similar to if somebody came up to me today after church and they said, you know what, Tori, I, like I actually really hate you and I never want to see you, talk to you, or think about you ever again. I'd be like, bye. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. Right? I'd be like, man, that, that kind of hurts, right? Why? Because I love this church, right? Like, like, I really, I don't say that in vain at the end of sermons. I genuinely love this church. So that would hurt in a way. But if my wife came up to me today and said, Tori, I hate you. I never want to see you, talk to you, or think about you ever again, that would hurt far worse. Why? Because in a lot of ways, the longer the love, the deeper the love, then the greater the torment of love's loss. But even in this analogy, I've only loved my wife like that for about a decade or so. But here comes the loss between the father and son who loved each other throughout all of eternity past. This love is infinitely long. It's absolutely perfect. And Jesus was losing this love to gain you. God so loved the world that he gave up his son. The father was losing this love to gain you. God, the Father, Christ, the Son, they love you. Don't you ever believe, dear brother and dear sister, that you are not loved by God? You are loved by the God of the universe, so much so that they are willing to divide this perfect harmony, this perfect unity, all measures of love that they might bring you in, y'all. You are loved by the God of the universe. I am loved by the God of the universe. This is unreal love. Jesus is willing to do what it takes to bridge that chasm. But in order for us to actually receive that love, to behold that love, to kind of uh, walk in that love, then we have to accept this love as accepting Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. We have to choose to follow him. See, because Mark is actually highlighting that for us. It's interesting the people's responses here. What they're saying is, hey, show us that you're real. In fact, if you come down off that cross, then we'll maybe believe that you are who you say you are. So come down off the cross, show us that you're real. And still today, our response to this love of God, I would argue, is still disbelief. We say, God proved to me that you love me like that. Despite all the evidence of the cross, right? 
Despite all the community he puts us around, we demand more signs and more clarity and him speaking to us more and proving himself more and going even more out of the way. Friends, we are just like the crowds, are we not? I'm not trying to keep empty condemnation. I do that to God. I tell the Lord, do you really love me, God? As, because I forget about the reality of what's happening here. And so we, like the crowds, we demand more signs. But just because you see more, it doesn't mean that you'll believe more. Right? Just because you see more doesn't mean you'll believe more. You believe when you recognize your need from, for, for God, your separation from God, and what Christ has done to bridge that back. That's what creates belief. That's what creates depth. That's what creates unity and harmony and intimacy and the things that we're looking for, not more signs. God could resurrect the dead right now, and a lot of us would walk out and forget that God loves us because he's probably done things like that in your life, like the near-death experience you had that he probably saved you from. We don't accredit that to God. We want more evidence. And on and on and on and on it goes. We are like the crowds. All of us are guilty. We're like Adam in the garden. And that's what Mark is trying to show us. In fact, if you look again at verses 29 through 32, I won't read that, but it's here on the screen. But I want you to see what Mark is even doing to kind of show how all of us are in this same camp. The passerby, the priests, the scribes, and the criminals are all the uh, characters in this paragraph, right? And every single one of them is mocking Jesus. Everyone is guilty, right? All the people there are hurling insults at him. If we want to receive God's love, then we have to recognize our role in his death, y'all. It was our sin that he paid for. It was our guilt, our shame, our condemnation was placed onto Christ at that cross. And so whether we try to be religious, like the chief priests and the scribes, we're still mocking Jesus. We do not do enough good to overcome that. Or whether we are condemned like the criminals and we know it and we came here feeling the weight of our sin today, yes, it was that sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Or even if we're like the passerby and we try to pass by God and ignore our responsibility to the God of the universe as if he is not our creator, though he is. And even if we try to ignore that, it is still our sin that is nailing Jesus to the cross. What Mark is trying to show us is all of us have blood on our hands. The difference is, are you washed by the blood or are you condemned by the blood? All of us killed Jesus. Are you washed by the blood? Do you receive the blood of Christ as a gift to you? Do you say, God, I want to follow you. Thank you for that. You recognize your need. You literally take communion and you remember the blood of Jesus and you say, thank you, Christ, because this blood was spilled out for me and because of that, I am forgiven. Or do you ignore or try to do good or make a different way? And in that, we condemn ourselves for we crucified Christ, y'all. It was our sins that he paid for. Everybody in the room, everybody in this world, Christ was trying to buy back to himself and bring them back in. Once again, Mark doesn't lit up. Let's finish our text today. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate, surprised to hear that she should have, he should have already died, 
And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shrewd and taking him down, wrapped him in the shrewd and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark is really, really clear here, y'all, that Jesus is dead. Like, look at all the words that signify that. It uses the word dead over and over and over and over again. They go to Pilate, and he's like, he's dead already? Get the centurion. He's like, yeah, he is dead. So they hand the corpse over, and as they take his corpse and lay his body in a tomb, Mark is going on and on and on to try to show us Jesus is dead. Jesus took on the physical, emotional, and spiritual death that we all deserve. That's what Mark is trying to highlight. But there's also a back end of the cross, I'm telling you, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning, y'all. Mark is so good, okay? Because there's also so much that Mark is trying to highlight for us. What I did was show you what Mark was trying to highlight and our responsibility to the cross and what Jesus actually did. But Mark is actually trying to highlight about 40 different things that the cross signifies for us and the benefits it has over us and in our life if we believe what I just said. For example, if you go back to verse 21, and this is going to be uh, hard to read because I put it in red. I didn't know you wouldn't be able to read it, okay? But if you look at verse 21, and, 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 next slide, and, 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 next slide, and, 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 and you can go in your Bibles if you want and you can look. Mark is trying to give us a holistic theology of the cross and what the cross does, and he's tying all these statements together. And the cross did this, 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 and he's culminating to help us see what the cross actually paid for in a lot of ways. What I highlighted was the payment, that Jesus died the death that we deserve, but why? What was he trying to accomplish for us? Well, let's take just the very first verse, verse 21, okay? And look at some of the things. That's where Mark kind of starts this and section off with. First of all, Mark is writing to the Romans, most commentators believe. And so he's writing to the Roman church. And what he says there in verse 21, go to the, a couple slides later, Stacey. Um, one more, one more. There, yeah, thank you, thank you. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Now, most gospels, they stop right there. But this guy, Mark, then says, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why is he showing us that? Well, because he's writing to the Roman church. And later, when Paul's writing to the Roman church, in Romans chapter 16, he says, hey, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has become a mother to me as well. Rufus was as weird of a name back then as it was today, all right? Not many people are named Rufus. If that's your name, hey, that's your mom. That ain't on you, all right? It's okay. Uh, if you named your kid Rufus, my bad. That was a bad joke, all right? But, okay, so this is likely what is happening is actually the same person. That's why Mark highlights this. So Mark is writing to the Roman church, and he says, oh, by the, your father, you know, the, the one that carried Jesus' cross, hey, these same sons, like, they're in your church right now. What this goes to show us, friends, is that you have no idea what God is setting you up for, and what you may count as suffering right now may actually be God trying to draw you to himself and maybe even the salvation of generations after you. See, the father carried the cross, 
But then the sons ended up being saved, and the wife became like a mother to Paul, and there was this ministry that was happening. And so for the Christian, suffering is not worthless. Do not negate what God may be doing through it, friends. The cross shows us that every ounce of suffering in Christ, it will be redeemed because Christ suffered the condemnation that you should have suffered. So there is no condemnation in our suffering. Now we can say that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why are we able to lay hold of that promise? Because of what Christ paid for at the cross. As Jesus paid on the cross, now every ounce of suffering is nothing but God's design and plan to orchestrate in you the reality of who he is. He might be trying to save you or make you more into himself or give you a testimony that will lead somebody else to faith, but there's no suffering that's worthless now because Jesus suffered on your behalf. This is good. Y'all better praise dance or something in this joint, shoot. (laughs) This is good news, y'all, right? Like, do you believe this? Is this true for you? Furthermore, keep going, same verse, verse 21. Uh, Notice that it tells you where the man is from. It says, Simon of Cyrene. In fact, almost every single location of a person is mentioned here. Why? Well, Cyrene is in Africa. In other words, a black man helped carry Jesus' cross up the hill with him. And in the other accounts, we actually see one of the criminals actually confesses Christ and gets saved, and he was most likely a Jewish man that came into the kingdom. And here in Mark's account, we see a Roman man, a white man, that proclaims this is the Son of God. And what we are seeing is that the cross is actually drawing all nations back to God, for God has always been a God of the nations. And so he's drawing people to himself here, white, black, brown, or whatever it may be. The nations are coming into the kingdom. Jesus died to save all mankind. And that's why we are a people who long to send people into the nations, that they would go tell the nations about this God that desperately loves them and that longs for them to come into the family. Jesus started this right away as that man was walking by thinking that he just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Man, that man got saved. And as they were spreading out throughout uh, uh, Africa or Europe or whatever, we see the gospel going to the nations. God has always been a God of the nations. The cross shows us that the nations are there welcomed in. The cross also shows us that all different types of people are welcomed in. We see a Roman centurion man, that's a a military man, probably a really hardened man in a lot of ways. Women are at the tomb because they probably believe a rich man is there. He's laid in a rich man's grave. There's a criminal that's there that gets saved. There's a religious person that's there. In fact, I love what it says about him. Look at verse 43 again. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. If you are looking for the kingdom of God, friends, God will put you in a position to receive the power of the gospel. I promise you that. If you knock, you will find. If you seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. If you are looking for God, God will reveal himself to you. In fact, maybe that's even why you're sitting in church today, because maybe you start looking for God, and maybe God is trying to reveal himself to you right now. God always wants to be found, and all different types of people are welcomed in, no matter where we are on that spectrum, no matter what we think of ourselves, God says, man, come on in, right? In the beginning of Mark chapter 14, verse 49, Jesus actually says, hey, let the scriptures be fulfilled, 
And then from that point on, literally, there's dozens of scriptures that are fulfilled. I don't have time to go through this, but even just in our little section that we read today, there are all these prophecies that are being fulfilled, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Even as we read this morning, there is a man that will ride in on a donkey, and we cry out, Hosanna, and then that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so what is this showing us? What is the cross showing us here? It's showing us that God can be trusted, y'all. Our God can be trusted. Every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that he will fulfill every single one of his plans. And so if it's present in scripture, it's going to come true, y'all. And so when it says that God has not withheld his son from you, why would he not also give you all other good things? That is a true promise for the believer that will find its yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All the promises of scripture, they're fulfilled. And Mark is trying to show us God is a God of his word. You can trust him. He will keep his word. He will keep his word. He does what he promises. God's plan will come to perfect completion Look at verse 37 and 38 there, another and in that section. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was, uh, was torn in two from top to bottom. Listen, y'all, I'm a father of children, okay? And if somebody killed my child, like our sin killed Jesus, so Mark's trying to show us, remember, let's bring the heaviness back in, Mark is saying, our sin killed Jesus. If somebody killed my child, the immediate response of me would be frustration or or anger. I would be wrath-filled, literally. Our sin killed Jesus. He uttered his last breath, and the immediate response of the Father was to tear the curtain that you and I may have access to God. If that imagery doesn't make sense, there was a curtain in the temple that nobody but the high priest can pass, and this wasn't like a curtain like this thing right here. It was almost as thick as a wall, and notice it was torn from top to bottom, which means God is the one that tore it. No man could have done that. The immediate response of the Father is, come on in. I want you in. You now have access to God is what this is showing. God longs for you to come in. That's the immediate response of the Father. Don't you believe the lie that you are not loved? You are loved by God. You are loved by God. This unbelievable truth, right? And so here we go, the bridging of the chasm. Friends, the cross shows you that you are far more loved than you ever dare imagined. In fact, every ounce of love that you long for from every human on earth, man, God is longing and willing to give that to you. That is the promise of the cross. You have access to God, and on and on and on and on it goes. Mark is trying to show us the reality of the cross, that if we confess, surely this is the Son of God, like that Roman man did. If we say, this is the Messiah, this is Jesus, this is who I need, this is who I've been looking for, then we can be saved and we can be brought into intimacy with God. Mark can go on and on. I'm telling you, there's like 40 of them. The marvels of the cross are unbelievable and we will be a people that forever sing the praises of the man on that cross. And Mark is trying to show us that. But listen here, Jesus suffered in your place, friends. Jesus suffered the death that you should have experienced 
the physical death, the emotional death, the separation from God, eternal death that we deserve. Man, Jesus paid that, that you may be restored and brought into relationship with God. This is why we marvel at the cross week in and week out because this is where our life is found. It is found here in this man in Jesus. Even going back, if you know the scriptures, Genesis chapter 3, the curse came and Adam was naked and ashamed. But here comes Jesus on the cross, naked and ashamed. Why? So that we who deserve that may not be clothed in his righteousness. We see darkness befalling over Jesus. Why? So that we who deserve to dwell in utter darkness may now live forever in the light of life. We see literally Jesus dying and being put in a grave, literally was in somebody else's tomb, in your tomb, where you deserve to die. Why? So that we who deserve to die may no longer have the sting of death, but literally we resurrect for the last moment and there's no more tear, no more suffering, all promises that we long for are in the cross of Christ. Hallelujah, praise our Savior. <laughs> praise our God. Gosh, y'all, Mark. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> I'm ready to go to heaven to see that man and be like, thank you. <laughs> all right. Listen, y'all, for the Christian, if you believe in this, then all suffering, all joy, all of your struggle against sin, all of your sadness, all of your hope, all of your future, it's all found at this moment. That the reality of what we long for, all of the promises that we need, the desires of our heart, they are paid for. And so let us never stop gazing at this moment, friends. Let us gaze at this moment forever. And if you do not know this Jesus is Savior, if you have not given your life into his hands, if you have not said, man, I want you as my God, then the invitation is open. It says anybody who confesses and believes, this gift is theirs. It's yours. If you believe in Jesus, this isn't just hype talk, y'all. This is truth. And if this is true, it changes everything. What Mark here is showing us is the end of all things in a lot of ways. And yet next week, at Easter Sunday, we get to begin to worship and celebrate the beginning of all things. Because we believe that every single promise was proved to be true because three days later, he resurrected, y'all. And that's how we know that this is true and that all these promises are accredited to us. And I can't wait to worship our God with you next week for that reality. Yeah. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, it's crazy. <laughs> this, in a lot of ways, Lord, it, it feels too good to be true. And in a lot of ways, it is too good. That's not what we deserve. But it is true. And so God, I pray for those who may not know you as they are wrestling with, are you really God? Are you who you say you are? Holy Spirit, that right now you would draw their hearts. Friends, right now you can enter into a relationship with God and all sin can be paid for. The guilt or shame that you feel, the indifference or apathy that you feel, even you trying to work yourself up to be a good enough person, all of that can be wiped away and you can be made right with God. I know it sounds too good to be true. Man, it's because it's really good. God longs for you to come in. And Lord, I pray for all of us who have made that our confession, all of us who believe 
that you are who you say you are. Let us worship you for eternity. When we are failing and struggling with sin, let us look to the cross. When we have joy, let us look to the cross. When we long for friendship, let us look to the cross. When we feel abandoned, let us look to the cross. I pray that we would be a people that gaze upon you forever. God, thank you for turning your face away from your son and for looking at us, that we may come into relationship with you. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Friends, at six different stations in the room, there's places for communion. And we say this every week because we mean it. We pinnacle to this time. And sometimes I try to draw communion into the message, but it's pretty simple today, y'all. The body represents the body of Jesus that we just read about was beaten, mocked, and scorned, spit on, flogged, ripped in two for you. The blood, the juice, represents the blood that was spilled out that if you believe in him, man, man, it's given to you. I love you guys. Let's stand. Let's worship.